0: Welcome to Academic Defectors. I am your host, Jillian Marshall, and I have a PhD. And although it took me seven years to earn this degree, which I did at Cornell University from 2011 to 2018, I ultimately chose to leave academia. And on this podcast, I'm going to be interviewing other PhDs who, like me, chose a different life for themselves outside the walls of the Ivory Tower. So before we hear anyone else's story about what drew them into academia, what made them question whether it was a viable life path personally and professionally, and ultimately what pushed them to leave, as well as how their transition has been out in the real world, I thought it'd be good to share my own experience with these very themes. And I'll preface by saying that you can read about this too in the first chapter of my first book, which came out last year in 2022 with Three Rooms Press. The book is called Japanthem: Countercultural Experiences, Cross-Cultural Remixes. But I'll I'll give some extra juicy details here about my time in academia and what I've been up to since and how academia has shaped my life. So, I've been interested in ideas for their own sake and thinking and learning ever since I was a little girl and I grew up in a very small town in a very rural part of Northern Vermont. I mean, most of Northern Vermont is very rural. Um, But I grew up in in a small farm town, which was big on dairy and huge on maple syrup. I love so much where I'm from. It is the most beautiful place. I am so grateful that I grew up running barefoot in the woods, playing imagination games with my sister, and just being out in nature. But even when I was little, and I and I loved all of that when I was little, too, I always had this kind of wanderlust. I always wanted to see the world, too. By the time I had to apply to college, I had this urge to go someplace far away. I wanted to live in a city. I wanted to experience that. And I ended up at the University of Chicago for undergrad. And might I add, too, that before heading off to college, I actually felt very split at that point because not only did I love ideas, I also really love music. I've been playing music since, I think as soon as I could walk to the piano I did. I was always so interested in it. I used to leaf through, before I could even read words, I would leaf through the scores of Ravel, Mirrois and Liszt and all these other, um, you know, vintage edition Schirmer scores that we had around the house. And I just was like, wow, these are, this is so beautiful. And I just loved piano. And then I also, I played trumpet too. And Trumpet in particular, I started to have this kind of, almost like a little career for myself as a high schooler. Um, It started off playing the National Anthem at games, which the janitors recommended that I do. And I was like first-year All-State. I got recruited for the Vermont Youth Orchestra and their Carnegie Hall trip, and... Um, You know, I was all New England. I was like very serious about classical trumpet playing and then playing the national anthem at the games ended up turning into getting invited to, you know, playing at the Vermont Dairy Co-op convention, which is a big deal up in those parts. And, you know, then it was, oh, the VFW need someone to play taps and, you know, oh, play this wedding and we'll pay you $100 to play music for like literally 30 seconds. It was, it was actually great. So by the time it it came time to go to college, I was really torn. Should I go to conservatory or should I go to intellectual, you know, regular college? And I ultimately chose regular college and UChicago was actually the perfect place for me because as someone who loves to learn UChicago which has this very intensive core curriculum where no matter what you're majoring in you have to take math, you have to take science, you have to take humanities, you have to take a foreign language. This all really tickled my intellectual appetite and I rightly figured you know music is something that I will never lose my passion for. Although I will say, and this comes into the story later on, I did, upon arriving to, to the University of Chicago, think to myself, this isn't really the place for me to pursue music in any kind of formal way, uh, particularly with regard to performance. I mean, this was a this is a place that's nicknamed where fun comes to die. This is more of an intellectually creative place than it is like a performatively creative place. At least that was how my, my thinking went. So instead, um, especially with this language requirement, I ended up getting thrust onto a totally different path than what I had originally wondered about pursuing upon arriving at school. And of course, i that was very amorphous. I remember in um, this profile that they did in the Burlington Free Press newspaper in Vermont on like high school seniors, it was called Academic All-Stars, and they interview you and they say, oh, what do you think you're majoring in? And I think i said... I want to do philosophy. I want to do music. I want to do physics. I want to do chemistry. It was like literally anything and everything. Of course, I, I I'm not a STEM person um, for various reasons. But by the time I arrived at University of Chicago, I thought, well, I don't I don't know what I'm gonna do. And my mom gave me really wonderful advice. She said, use college as a time to figure out what you wanna to, wanna to study. And she was so right. That ended up becoming what my interests were. Ended up becoming clear through the foreign language requirement. So I took Latin in high school. And while our Latin teacher was amazing, he was just like this very cosmopolitan, interesting person um, who had traveled the world. And then he also was like a gourmet chef. So he would make ancient Roman food for us, like ancient Roman recipes that were unbelievable. I didn't actually learn a whole lot of Latin. I mean, we, could, we made the teacher basically tell his stories All the time and I think he was more interested in doing that than teaching us Latin besides so you know Fabula Friday was turning into Fabula Tuesday so needless to say by the time I got to the University of Chicago I was like if even if I wanted to take Latin if I had to take this Latin placement test I'd bomb it I'd get a zero so I might as well start from scratch and someone that lived in my dorm who to this day is a very good friend of mine but I met her that very first week of school She is Chinese-American, and for whatever reason, she said to me, oh, hey, Jill, you should, you want to learn my Chinese name? And she told it to me, and I said it back to her, and she said, oh, wow, your pronunciation's really good. You should take Chinese. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I will take Chinese, because I always had this kind of latent interest in Asia. I don't know where it came from. No one from my family had ever been to Asia. No one ever really talked about it. I mean, I think my grandfather... Both of them, I think, were in the Navy in World War II, but that wasn't what piqued my interest in Asia, I guess. I I probably just looked at a map and thought, wow, that's as far away as you can go before you just start coming back. And that really appealed to me. Again, this wanderlust that I had as a kid, just imagining all these different places I wanted to go. And, you know, weirdly, too, I, I remember checking out the Japanese dictionary at Fairfield Center School growing up, and, you know, trying to teach myself some phrases, and I just thought, you know, I don't know. It was just, ex- it was exotic, and I, I don't mean that in any problematic sense. It was literally, by the very definition of the term, it was completely different than anything that 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 I was around, you know, in Vermont. But none- nonetheless, it wasn't necessarily something that was on my radar. I didn't really think about it much. It just, I just remember going to, like, the Chinese restaurant and getting buffet, takeout, and looking up at the big great wall, you know, illuminated picture and just thinking to myself, wow, that's really far away, that's cool. So I decided to take Chinese and our Chinese professor at the University of Chicago, shout out to Tsai lao he, on the very first day we showed up and he said to the class, if you are here for the language requirement, please leave now. If you are here because you are an economics major, And you want to learn business chinese please leave now basically get your shit and get out (laughs) like if you're gonna take this class you are going to learn chinese and if you're going to learn chinese you're going to do it the chinese way so if you're here for any other reason except to learn chinese get out and a bunch of people got their stuff and left but for me i don't know i took is it the red pill or the blue pill i never remember but i took the pill that was like yeah man i'm all in let's like check this out and of course what ended up happening was chinese took over my life for two years Monday through Friday, every single morning, going to Chinese. And the the teachers were really intense, obviously, but they were also very thorough. And I just became really fascinated with the language. It it appealed to me too how with Chinese, there's no way to half-heartedly do it. Either you learn it or you don't. It's almost like math in that sense. It's either you're either you're in it or you're not. Either you get it or you don't. But at that point, too, in the first two years of college, I still wasn't sure what I was going to major. And I was taking all kinds of classes, political science and history and biology, extra calculus to just try to figure out, you know, what is it that I want to do? And then I studied abroad between my second and third years of college. And I did this masochistically difficult program called Princeton in Beijing, which is like an immersion only intensive Chinese summer program. And what makes it very difficult is that you have to sign a language pledge. If they catch you speaking English, you literally get kicked off kicked out of the program. And I thought, okay, okay. And you know, I got what I signed up for, which was boot camp. So I was I finished up at Princeton, Beijing. I traveled around China for a little less than two weeks by myself. And anyway, on the way home from the Princeton and Beijing summer summer program, my plane ticket, I had this like 16-hour nighttime layover in Tokyo. I think I got there at, you know, 8 p.m. and I was supposed to leave at 11 30 the next day and I thought well might as well hit the town right you know great I'll, I'll do that I'll check out Tokyo for a night what else am I gonna do sit around in the airport I'm not gonna sleep anyway um I asked these two like American dudes at customs like hey man where, where can I hit the town and they said oh you should check out this place it was Roppongi which is kind of like a like it's not really se- it's a little it's where all the clubs are for foreigners but it's also very like affluent and seedy at the same time it's kind of an interesting place and as soon as I made it out on the street, I was just I was just completely blown away. I I just completely fell in love with Japan, like or you know what I saw of it in that night, um, and it, it was just like wow, I feel like I'm home. This is my destiny. I, I need to come back here. I need to live here. This is what I am here to do. Like at this stage of my life. So I went back to you, Chicago, and I realized well, this whole time I've been pursuing. A degree in east asian languages and civilizations, so understanding of course not just the languages but also the history the culture you know the arts anything of east asia so i declared my major and i, I shifted my focus away from chinese studies to japanese studies much to the chagrin of my chinese professors i remember one uh one of the chinese professors li lao she found me in the hallway once um, and she was like, why have you abandoned your study of China? Why are you studying Japan? Don't you know the wartime history? And she was just like yelling at me in Chinese and that has stayed with me over the years, um, which probably says something. Anyway, I just also have to add that even though I was this budding Japanist and I was fascinated by Japanese history, especially the Meiji Restoration from 1868 onward where Japan kind of realized after these uh, increasingly urgently threatening contacts from the western world notably commodore matthew perry arriving with his so-called black ships basically demanding trade lest there be trouble and the japanese government was like well i guess we have to end our self-imposed sakoku or like closed door policy that was in place from the early 17th century up until 1868 and if the way of the world is empire, then we might as well become an empire ourselves so that we can beat the West at their own game. So Japan actually referred to their own empire as the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. And the whole idea was to conquer mainland Asia and you know the Philippines and Indonesia so that at least if it was, it were to be colonized, it would be by a, an Asian force as opposed to a Western force. But nevertheless, I was fascinated by this shift and how from 1868 to 1945, Japan had completely transformed itself. And then in the next 50 years after that, up until the present moment, transformed itself again. Like, what is this place? So my preface here is that's what interested me about Japan intellectually, not cat ears, anime any of that nonsense. I just, I just have to put that out. I've never seen anime in my life. I've only ever seen something called Perfect Blue, like a psychological thriller that uh, my partner was like, hey we should check this out. Not even because it was an anime, but because it was just like an interesting movie that came out in the 90s. I, I just, I just don't, that's just not my area. I, I don't have interest in it. There are other people that know way more about it than me, and I'll just let them have it. And also, I, I also just have to say, I think it's very like fetishistic to just look at that one very narrow aspect of Japanese pop culture not saying that I, well, actually, no, I am saying that I'm an expert. I literally have a PhD also in uh, Japan really, and stuff, but we'll get there. So anyway, University of Chicago, I majored in East Asian languages and civilizations. Um, I wrote an honors thesis. In search of place, Korean and Taiwanese identity formation during Kominka and the military volunteer program 1937 to 1945. So basically understanding Korean and Taiwanese national identity during the time of the Japanese empire. So anyway, yeah, I had this thesis that I was writing and I was very interested in these issues, very interested in the Pacific theater, Um, but I did no work on it until the last week when I finally decided to sit down and integrate all the notes that my thesis advisor had given me earlier when he had also said that I had a long way to go before I could even call what I'd submitted to him a draft. I basically didn't sleep for a week and then I submitted it and I thought, man, that was, what a waste. If I ever get the chance to do this again, I'm not procrastinating the graduate student who led the thesis seminar uh, that we had to take for EALC majors. She, I remember she chased me down in the classics building because there was a cafe there that I liked to go to. And she said, Jill, Jill, you got honors. We didn't think you could do it, but wow, this is a great paper. I was like, oh my God, imagine what could happen if I actually applied myself. Not that I didn't want to apply myself. I, just was, I, I was just a hardcore procrastinator. So I, I learned about that. But around that same time, too, at the end of college, I thought to myself, man, I really miss music. All this Asian stuff is great, but I really miss music. So I took some music theory, and then I ended up taking a class my last quarter at Chicago called Music History 1800 to Present. And it was with this postdoc who I looked at and just, I admired his life, which was this balance between intellectualism and music that I had been Looking for, you know, since before I even went to college, and had sort of forgotten about when I got caught up with the Asian stuff, which I have no regrets about. It was fascinating, and I'm glad that that's what I decided to, you know, do when I was at u chicago The way I wanted to, the way I decided to use my intellectual energies, at at a place where learning that kind of thing would be advantageous for me. And I remember just like going to his office hours and picking his brain and like really getting into that class and just loving everything we were doing. And he said to me, he said, "Look, you know." If you combine your Asian studies with your love of music, then you could really have a really interesting dissertation topic in musicology, which is the study of music in historical and social contexts. So this can be done through archival research, it can be done through score analysis, it can be done through performance studies and performance practice, or it can be done through through ethnographic work, and that's what ethnomusicology, which is a branch of musicology, is. And his words about combining my Asian studies with this newly piqued interest in musicology rang in my ears, and I I just thought to myself, duly noted. And after graduating from the University of Chicago, I ended up moving to Japan for two years to teach English with the JET program, Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, and... I, I moved to a tiny fishing village on an island called Awaji, which is in between Shikoku, which is the smallest of Japan's four main islands and the mainland. But I lived on the very Southern tip near Shikoku. So like I was basically two islands removed from the mainland. And I worked on an island off of Awaji called Nushima or bog Island. I had to take a boat to get there. It was fantastic. And on my first week in, in the island, I remember hearing outside my window these taiko drums. And I went out and there was this festival happening, which I later would learn was was called Obon. And Obon is basically a festival of the dead. It's a Buddhist holiday that celebrates one's ancestors and reveres them. So people go back to where where they're from. You know, if you have people living in Tokyo, Osaka, whatever, they go back to where their family's ancestors have roots and they spend time with them, kind of like in the holiday season here in the U.S. And then at the end of Obon... There's a dance and song in the streets, almost like a parade that's supposed to be basically like a send-off to the specters of your ancestors that are also said to come back to the earthly plane during Obon. And that was happening during my first week in Japan, and I was just like, this is incredible. Japan is kind of unique in the sense although there are other societies like this as well, you know, South Korea being a prime example. Japan is this unique society where it's simultaneously hyperkinetic, future shock, technological futurescape, and an ancient, traditional society at the same time. So seeing this traditional in Scarecrow's music performed in a contemporary context that wasn't museumized—was really thought-provoking to me. And I thought, you know, this could be my musicological research topic: understanding tradition in contemporary context. So. Um, when I was applying to grad school during the fall of my second year in Japan, that was my research topic that I pitched, because when you apply to graduate school, you don't just, you know, take the SAT and here's my transcripts, I'm smart. You you apply, at least in the humanities, with a uh, with a research topic, something that you want to explore further, basically your dissertation topic, which of course will change over time. You know, you have to have kind of like a rough sketch of what you want to do. And I researched uh, different departments at different universities, and because I didn't have a degree in music as an undergrad, I was actually quite limited in the programs that I could apply to, and I'd settled on applying to the University of Michigan and Columbia University. So when I was gathering my letters of recommendation, I thought I'd ask that postdoc guy who taught music history 1800 to present, And he got back to me and he said, hey, I'm actually a tenure track professor now at Cornell. We also don't require a music undergraduate degree to apply. Have you thought about coming here? And the idea of working with him was just like a dream come true. I looked up other professors in the music department, also in Asian studies. And there were some people there that were just big name people who also happened to get their PhDs from the University of Chicago. Shout out to Naoki Sakai. And I thought, wow, I could see myself there, and I got in. And so after moving from the fishing village back to the U.S. and moving to upstate New York in my early 20s, I was 23 when I was going, when I started at Cornell, about to turn 24. It was a bit of a reverse culture shock, and I wasn't really sure what to expect in the beginning. But even though I was kind of apprehensive about things in the beginning, I also thought, you know, I I made it. Because <laughs> I figured that getting into a PhD program where you have, in, our, in my year, in my cohort, we had three musicologists, myself included, plus a pianist and a composer. So we're talking 80 applicants for three spots. It's competitive. And I thought that if I get into a top program and then I just do well in the program, then, you know, I could be a professor. Because for me, ever since I was, A teenager. I'd never really thought about my career. I just wanted to think. I wanted to write. I had this idea ever since I was a teenager of writing a book about society. and I ended up doing that, just Japanese society. And of course, playing music. I just thought if I pursue my passions, the career will follow. I never envisioned myself having a straight job, but I figured if I did it would probably be teaching. And in college too, I had an internship teaching High school students on the far south side of chicago as i was something like a, of a like an arts liaison with a nonprofit film company so i was working with kids and i got bit by the teaching bug pretty much immediately and i thought you know i could definitely do this so in terms of thinking about a career i wasn't i wasn't locked into any kind of particular path but i did think along the way especially around the time i saw that postdoc wow i could be a professor that could be a good way to you know, live this musical intellectual life where I also get to travel and have minimal supervision because I've always had a hard time working under people. I don't know if it's like a problem with authority per se. It's just that I work best independently and you definitely get to do that as a professor. There's a lot of autonomy in the job and that appealed to me. The other thing too, of course, was you get to be on college campuses. You get to be around young people. And that was just like, yeah, I'll be a professor. That'd be great. So in terms of pursuing that, I wouldn't really call it a dream per se. It wasn't like I really, really wanted to be a professor, but that career goal, I guess, I thought, wow, like I'm I'm great. And I got into Cornell, I'm in this top program. This is it's gonna be smooth sailing. And for the first couple years of grad school it was, and I thought, I'm gonna make it. I was aware that it was going to be competitive. I didn't know how competitive and not necessarily meritocratic. Um, until later on. So so for the first couple years of school, I was just thinking, yeah, I've got it made. I'm running off to Japan every summer, and it's paid for. Uh, I got a nice year-long fellowship my third year from the U.S. Department of State. It was a foreign language and acquisition scholarship, which was basically to polish up my Japanese, which was good after living there for two years. But I had these weird kind of nuances to it. I talked like a fisherman. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I took some Japanese to just polish things up, I took like a translation seminar with the great Professor Brett DeBerry in the Asian Studies Department. And the Flask Fellowship basically was a year of funding, I just had to take Japanese and then also take Japan-related courses or whatever, which was what I was doing anyway, so, great! And at the end of my third year, I got bullied by a professor, and it was a really awful experience, because I didn't think that something like that could happen. Basically, what happened was this Flas Fellowship, again, necessitated that I take Japanese in some Japan-related course. That same year, or the year before, actually, the music department had done a job search for an ethnomusicology hire. And at that point, we really needed someone to teach us a fieldwork methods course. Because we didn't have one, and I was in anthropology kind of squatting in on their classes, which was actually great. But I just sort of felt a little bit like, well, you know, you guys offer an ethnomusicology specialization within the musicology PhD, but there's no methods course for us. How does that work? So they asked for my input, you know, the graduate student input during the, hire, the hiring process. And I said, I'd love to see someone who can teach a methods class. The professor that they ended up going with wasn't actually their first choice. The first choice turned down Cornell. And the music department kind of scrambled. So they ended up kind of going back to like their wait list and they offered the job to someone there and she took it. So uh, the next year when I had my fellowship, I had, politically, I had to take her class. Unfortunately, her class met at the exact same time as the only Japanese class that I could take on campus, which was the second half of fourth year Japanese. There was no other Japanese class I could take, you know, and, and everything else would have been far too remedial. I mean, I'd lived and worked in Japan for two years at that point and taken Japanese at Cornell to just clean it up and just make sure I could write essays and, you know, do stuff like that in Japanese, conduct interviews, contact professors. I translated a chapter from an academic book into English. There was nothing else I could take. And the the ethnomusicology hire, she said to me, well, you, you need to just miss half your Japanese class. And I said, well, I can't do that. This is a seminar too. It's not like we're just sitting there conjugating verbs, you know? And she said, and I quote, My class is more important than Japanese. And I thought to myself, that is so not your call to make. Needless to say, my Japanese professor did not understand what was happening either. And she said, no, why can't she just move that seminar? I just felt wretched. Eventually, what ended up happening was the ethnomusicology professor moved her class's start time half an hour later. And it didn't really matter when it started because there was only five of us, six of us in the seminar anyway. And the the start time was sort of contingent upon us. Whereas the fourth year Japanese class had, you know, more people, I think there was around 10, and it was a set course. A graduate seminar is actually kind of a casual affair. There's tea, you can eat, you know, there's not like rules, like with a class that's cross-listed with undergrads. So, my professor for ethnomusicology started the class half an hour later, and in exchange, I would miss half of my Japanese class so that it would be even. And halfway through the semester, my Japanese professor pulled me aside to ask how I was doing, and I just burst into tears. And she wrote a a letter to the ethnomusicology professor who felt the fact that I didn't just skip my Japanese class for her class, she interpreted it as a personal affront and an attack on her authority, which it wasn't because I had no choice. I had this fellowship. What was I supposed to do? So my Japanese professor wrote her a letter and was like, this isn't really working out for Jill. And the ethnomusicology professor, of course, took that as another personal attack against her. And she told me your Japanese professor isn't willing to deal with you as an adult. Just because, you know, she didn't want me to miss her class. Um, (laughs) The irony, too, of course, is that now I actually teach Japanese for a significant portion of my living, so in the end, yes, Japanese was more important for me than this ethnomusicology seminar, but we'll get there. And anyway, the semester just dragged on, and it was really painful for me intellectually and spiritually. I just remember being filled with dread, and the professor took her beef with me out in the hallways of the music department, like I would pass her and she would scowl at me, like straight up sneer at me. And I'm just thinking to myself, my God, I I did nothing wrong. It it was just, it was so absurd. She wouldn't call on me in class. She would shoot down any of my questions, any of my ideas. And when it came time for our final papers, she offered me zero feedback and she gave me the lowest passing grade for a seminar, which is a B minus. And that same semester, I had secured a Fulbright Fellowship to conduct my fieldwork in Japan during my fourth year, which is a big deal. And it was a Fulbright Fellowship with MTV, and only five of those were awarded in the country that year. So, you know, it was like this feeling of not knowing who was right. On the one hand, in the music department, I was getting bullied by this professor, but on the other hand, I got two subsequent national awards in a row. Which is it? Am I B- minus, almost failing, or am I doing really innovative work? So the experience I had in the seminar with the ethnomusicology professor marked the first time in my graduate school career that I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is the kind of environment where I want to work. I wonder if this is what I want in my life. But of course, on the other hand, I came out of that experience with this shiny Fulbright Fellowship. I'd also done well in my qualifying exams during my third year, which was a stressful experience to be sure, but not without a certain romance, you know, of, you know, passing these big rigorous tests and kind of having almost like a mini defense with your committee. You know, there was something about that that was very gratifying and made me feel, along with my Fulbright Fellowship, that I was really doing it. I was doing well. So I thought, you know, there was a lot of nastiness that happened with that professor but I'm off to Japan for a year, and I'm feeling great, and I'm gonna come back and hit the ground running. And at that point too, my project had evolved into a trisection of contemporary Japanese society through three different musical scenes. So contemporary iterations of traditional music, like I thought of in the beginning, as well as J-pop and underground music, which I had actually started to dig and get into and go to shows for when I was living in Awanji, an acquaintance of mine from you know, the University of Chicago, we took Japanese literature together, um, had moved to Osaka and he was like, hey, I'm going to these shows, you want to come with? And I thought, yeah. And as soon as I went to my first club, it was almost like that feeling of when I went to Tokyo for the first time, like, wow, I'm home. Japan is a place where it's very easy as a foreigner, especially, you know, me as a young foreign woman living on an island where 70% of people are over 70 was where it was Bog Islands demographics. <laughs> I felt very out of place so going to you know these underground music shows where it's just like soft minimal techno like house music I I just felt like I was in solidarity with other outcasts it was really profound but I hadn't really thought you know like a lot of different things the theme of the day I guess I hadn't thought that that would be that would factor into my life in any kind of professional way until it came time to apply for grants and the Fulbright MTV grant was like oh well I could do pop music and what about underground music so I go to Japan and what ended up happening was that I had myself quite the year. It was, my, the, this dichotomy between like researcher and subject got thrown out upon my arrival. The traditional music I studied was up in Akita Prefecture, which is a northern part of Japan. Um, and I studied an Obon festival there. It's one of the big three, as it's known in Japan, the Sandai Bonodori. And it's been performed since the year 1200. And it's just, it, it was so beautiful, so fascinating. That was also, I found that, <laughs> uh, I found that festival by accident, kind of, too, um, when I was doing a field trip in 2013. And I just went to, like, 20 different Obon festivals to see which one was, was which. This one wasn't in my plans, an acquaintance took me, and I was like, yep, this is the one. So anyway, um, the traditional music scene up in Akita, I kind of got adopted by these two old lady dancers, so to speak, who just made me their protege and just... To this day, we're in touch. And I danced in the festival for subsequent years. This year, I'm going back and I can't wait. And I just felt really at home there. But especially in the underground music world in Tokyo, which is where I was living. And then again, in other parts of the country. It was just... I I was accepted there by people. And I was just so... Like seeing how these people were just living their lives and were just cool and making art and wearing interesting clothes. And it really lit something up in my soul that couldn't that couldn't be extinguished after being recognized. It's the only way I can put it. And this was who I was running with in Japan. And it just was like, oh my God, this is how I want to live my life. I want to be creative. I want to play music. I want to write. I want to get back into these dreams that I'd had since I was since I was younger. So I went back to Cornell in 2015 and that's when things that was when the turning point really happened for me because it was so hard to just go back to my life in Ithaca after having these profound experiences for a year and meeting all these people and living life in a totally different way. So I did I did get the chance to teach my own class that that year. It was called From Zen to J-Pop. That really solidified my love of teaching and that I wasn't completely out of the game yet, but I thought, you know, I don't know. I really want to be a creative, but I love teaching. I love working with undergrads. You don't have to discipline them, but they still have youthful energy and you can just really go head to head with them. And I loved that. And my students and I, we just had such a great time in the class. They were so wonderful. But I kind of was starting to feel, I just was feeling out of place at Cornell and just dissatisfied with my life there. As opposed to actually living my life, which is what I was doing in Japan, so I started to question: Who am I doing this for? What's the point of this? Like, I can't just translate these experiences into this oblique language. This wasn't just like fodder for my research project. My life in Japan ended up becoming my life, and so I I felt so I felt split. So I taught my class from Zen to J-pop for the year, and then now we're in 2016. I went back to Japan that summer, and then I came back to Cornell again for another year. And during this year, I actually had a writing fellowship. It was from the university that we were guaranteed as part of our funding package that was intended for writing our dissertation. And although I'd been back in the U.S. for a year at this point, I hadn't even started thinking about writing yet. I still had to process everything that had happened living life. And... So that was when I came face to face with what it meant to write a dissertation based on what had happened, you know, based on this research that I'd done. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get into writing the theoretical analysis required of writing a dissertation at that point in time. But I did think, you know, I can at least write down the stories of what happened. And so I started to write. I ended up producing almost 200 pages of these stories and then I started to kind of wonder to myself, huh, maybe I can theoretically integrate these stories somehow, but for, for the time being, this is what I'm doing. And it made me realize too, I love writing. I just don't like academic writing. That's the problem here. Now, the other thing that had started in 2016 too, and I had started to wait tables I had actually moved into a kind of expensive one-bedroom apartment after I had come back from my fieldwork, my initial fieldwork in Tokyo in 2015. I, I just, instead of groveling at the institution, I decided I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I, I, I'd like to get a part-time job, almost as a foray, just moving out of my head, A, and B, just being in the world, and I got a job waitressing at this um Dim sum restaurant, and it was actually it was just such a highlight of my time at Cornell. I loved my coworkers, this uh, family that ran the restaurant. I loved them, and I loved the customers. I loved almost meditative tasks of the work. You know, take out the food, take the orders, clean the tables, set the tables, and at the end of the day, you're done, and you have money. And I, I really liked that, and I could also, you know, kind of spread my wings intellectually there a little bit too because. I had studied Mandarin at University of Chicago, and the family that ran the joint, uh, they spoke Cantonese. So I ended up picking up some Cantonese, basically like restaurant Cantonese, like we're out of sesame balls, mola, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But you know, that was fun for me. And I, I had Chinese customers. I'd speak to them in Mandarin, and it was, it was fun. I had a really great time, and it ended up kind of helping me realize too, in the in the process of working there, that. It kind of felt like at the end of uh, my weekend shifts that I was hanging up my real job and going back to my side hustle. It's funny, under my robe during my PhD graduation ceremony in my department, I actually wore my waitressing uniform that day and I went right to the restaurant after, Uh, (laughs) which I think says a lot about where my priorities lay at that point in time. Now in the fall of 2017, I'd actually been awarded a writing fellowship from the Department of Asian Studies. And this was at the beginning of my seventh year. And I could use this fellowship to, yes, write my dissertation, and at that point I had kind of started to dip into the theoretical chapters more, but I could do so wherever. So, of course, I went back to Japan. And all of a sudden, I'm back into my life there where I'm DJing, I'm riding my bike everywhere, I'm baking cakes and zucchini breads under the table at a champagne bar run by a hostess, you know, I'm playing piano at a male ballerina's studio, I'm digging for vinyl and vintage Dior at the junk shop. You know, it was just like, I'm living life. This is so great. And then I went back to Cornell. It, (sighs) my heart was not in it anymore. And I was like, I have to finish up my dissertation and I need to, I need to get out. (laughs) But yeah, I came back to Cornell and I was writing and teaching at that point. And the class I was teaching was amazing. It was jazz theory and improv. One of the greatest crops of students I've ever had at my time at Cornell. And might I just say that their energy, their spirits are really what got me through that, that last semester. At that point too, I was just like, you know, I I think I just, I need to get out because I'm going kind of crazy. And I had, I had been losing so much weight. I eat when I'm bored, but when I'm really stressed, I just, I lose my appetite. And I remember thinking to myself, I have to at least get to 500 calories a day. I didn't want to lose weight. It just, I did not have an appetite, and I was just strung out, and I'm smoking weed, which I'd begun doing on the regular after I'd come back from that first year of field work in 2015, and the idea was it would help me relax and de-stress and be more creative, but it didn't really help me stay anchored to reality. (laughs) And when the semester ended, and now we're in the spring of 2018, it was me versus myself in a race to the finish line to finish my dissertation submit it and defend. And my defense was on July 15th, 2018. So I s- submitted my dissertation to my committee two weeks before that date. I had pulled like several all matters in a row, sort of like my undergrad thesis, but it wasn't really procrastination. I didn't procrastinate on my dissertation, even though it took me a year before I even started to write it after coming home from that initial year of field work. But I did get it done. It was called Liner Notes, Aesthetics of Capitalism and Resistance in Contemporary Japanese Music. And yeah, I figured out a way to theoretically justify having half my dissertation be stories. I called it solipsistic ethnography. So taking the ethnographic vignette, which any ethnographer, be it in ethnomusicology, anthropology, whatever field that does ethnography, will include in their research as a sense of being there, providing insight into their fieldwork. So taking the ethnographic vignette to new levels as a way of offering transparency and therefore a different kind of objectivity to readers that way, instead of claiming that the experiences themselves that I had were inherently objective, because of course that's fallacious. In ethnomusicology, say, the trend tends to be that Okay, someone goes off into the field and studies X obscure music, that's the definitive version, and no, there's no other room for debate. Whereas, there are obviously like that person, that particular field worker, that particular researcher's experience is going to color who they are as a person is going to color the experience they have, right? So, what's definitive? How can we build a canon more responsibly in ethnomusicology while accounting for this lack of objectivity? So, solipsistic ethnography was my way of um, countering that, solipsistic, coming from solipsism, the branch of existential philosophy that posits that there's no such thing as objectivity, we're all just living in our own experience, and in fact, nothing outside our own sensorial interpretations can be proven. So that was my dissertation, where in addition to theorizing on the nature of the ethnographic vignette and the role that should serve in one's ethnographically informed thesis, I postulated that We should understand aesthetics as a social phenomenon rather than just like what something sounds like. So that was also based on my time in Japan thinking about my own experience being in these music scenes, realizing that the traditional music world and the underground music world were actually quite similar. You have this group of people who is very dedicated to a particular music scene and to dance, championing this music and doing work for it to actually exist in the face of this kind of juggernaut of... J-pop, right? And this aesthetic of not just the, how the music is itself, but how the music is performed and consumed, particularly through purchasing media, consuming media alone, and basically passivity as opposed to activity in the traditional and underground music scenes. So I defended and I, of course, passed and I had to incorporate a few edits into my dissertation. And that's when things really, for me, tanked. My mental health really tanked. I could not find the Word document that I had submitted to my committee as a PDF, which means that I could not find the editable document. And I scoured my computer, which had long had glitches with, this, with, with the document. It could not really handle the document. I remember I would save it and it would end up in weird areas on my hard drive or you know, I I lost my footnotes twice, actually, and had to retype all of them, and I had 400 of them, which was brutal. Uh, just because my computer, it couldn't handle this 350-page beast with picture, 200 picture examples and 400 footnotes and Japanese all over the place. And it apparently did not save the Word document that I had converted into a PDF to send to my committee. In the wake of that realization, when I went back to just incorporate, again, a few edits from my advisor, I had a full-on Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance style breakdown, <laughs> which I will tell you about. It was it was it was horrible, and this was when I knew, like, yeah, I can't do this. This is if I stay in academia, it will push me to physical, mental, and spiritual limits that I just couldn't bear the idea of enduring ever again. So I uh, it was two in the morning. At that point, I was living in the downstairs of one of the walk chefs. Um, house that he owned in Ithaca. And I I was just too ridden with anxiety to think about anything else other than the prospect that I might have to retype my entire dissertation from this PDF. 350 pages. And I was just, I was devastated and I, when I reach like ultimate points of despair, I have this urge where I just want to throw things. So I thought to myself, what can I throw and not wake up Eddie? you know the block chef upstairs so i thought okay maybe i'll throw my laundry so i started to throw some laundry around my bedroom it didn't really cut it right obviously this like this sucks this is not cathartic at all this isn't what i had in mind so i went to my kitchen and i started to tear down these like post it notes i'd put up for myself as like a an attempt at encouraging myself to stay positive during you know the final push and of course i just felt like i was john fucking nash you know what the fuck am i doing with all these post it notes on my wall like a lunatic and I just started to cry and I tore them all down. And then I was like, I still need to break something. And I looked at my recycling bin where I had a bunch of glass bottles from the the juice I liked to get at the co-op. And I thought, this is it. And I gathered up my recycling and I went outside to the park across the street and I just started chucking glass bottles at the sidewalk in the street. I mean, it was dark and I'm sobbing. I'm wailing like an animal. I can't do this. I can't do this. How the, How am I going to get through this? And when I was done throwing the bottles, I lay down in the street, and I was just crying. And I thought, I can't, I can't do this. In the end, and I, that all ended at around 3 a.m., in the end, I did find a later, if not the latest version of my dissertation somewhere in the cloud in like a scent box somewhere. And I just sucked it up, and I edited it, and I submitted it. Because, you know, I didn't come that far to not earn my three letters, Ph.D. And at that point, I moved to, like, literally two days after I submitted, I moved to New York City to start over. And New York had come about because in 2015, I had started to go there pretty often, like, once a month, once every two months, to hang out with an artist friend of mine. And to just make art, make magic, be creative together, and explore the city, which I kind of had an epiphany about. I never really liked New York. Now on the other side of all this, I I still don't really like, I don't, (laughs) I have a lot of issues with this place. It's it's such a hard place to live. It just is, as in, there's just so much going on all the time. It's so chaotic and it's dirty and it's just, you know, the trains run local on the weekend when it's like, I'm just trying to go out to dinner. (laughs) Why does it take like two hours to do anything in this town? Like one way. Anyway, but in 2015, I was really enchanted with New York, probably because I was smoking weed at that point. I think that's what helped me. I quit smoking weed in 2019, a year after I finished uh, my dissertation and a year after I moved to New York. And then since then, my relationship to New York has steadily become back to me just feeling very impatient all the time. But anyway, in 2015, I was hanging out there. I was really vibing the place. I thought, you know, this could be where I start over as an artist, as a creative. So, you know, in 2018, that's what I did. And when I first got to New York, I thought to myself, you know, I really just need to decompress. I don't want to crawl into my brain to make a living for a while. I just want to wing it. And in the meantime, to make rent, what I will do is the thing that ended up bringing me a lot of joy in the latter half of my PhD that wasn't, you know, going off to Japan was waiting tables. So I ended up getting a job at this super old school Italian red sauce social club restaurant in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is where they filmed Saturday Night Fever. And actually speaking of movies, Martin Scorsese himself personally chose the restaurant where I worked, it was called New Corner Restaurant, to film significant portions of The Irishman, which was his last great mobster flick. This place was like, it was like literally an Italian cheers. It was it, it felt like a reality TV show. It was wild. I fell in love with the place at first sight. I responded to an ad on Craigslist and I started working there. At the same time too, I was also adjuncting at Binghamton, which was a gig that my advisor had. Hooked me up with before I left the academic world. And I thought, you know, I'll take the job because I will at least have rent when I move to New York. And my students were amazing, but the whole thing was so brutal. The department kind of treated me like I was pond scum. They didn't start giving me paychecks until after I'd already been working for six weeks and I was so desperately broke. I realized, you know, this is the kiss of death for me. I don't want to be a part of this system. It just didn't seem ethical to me. And I, I, I just wanted to focus on growing this bohemian life of mine, which I think in a lot of ways is a metaphor for what my journey has been as a humanities scholar, as an ethnomusicologist transitioning out into the world. So I waited tables, after the Binghamton gig wrapped up, I waited tables full-time for about four months before I started to feel ready to move on. I didn't move to New York to just wait tables and I didn't get a PhD to wait tables. So what's the next step? I became really determined at that point to figure out how I can make this work for me. And I tried a bunch of different things. I got a job at a startup to be like a researcher and I hated it. I knew I hated it from the first day I started working there. I quit after two days and I did get a paycheck for it, which I hounded them for for like a month. <laughs> and I still kept working at this Italian restaurant because it was it was bringing me joy. It was funny. And uh, we'll get back to the role that has ended up playing in my journey in a minute here, but I started working at that startup, I quit, and then I ended up picking up some part-time work freelancing as a language teacher. I taught Chinese at a hedge fund in Central Park South and then I also started teaching Japanese at this gallery space slash design studio slash self-described mutant space slash classroom uh, in the East Village and that really took off. The Japanese classes were really popular, I kept selling them out, and then I ended up getting a lot of students who were interested in working with me privately. And all of this too just felt so great, like it it scratched an itch because I loved teaching. That was maybe my favorite part of being in academia other than the autonomy and the funding to go off to japan and i thought to myself well I, if i love teaching why don't i try the public schools here i loved working with the high schoolers in chicago why don't i try it here so i got a substitute teaching license and i also started working at this um after school weekend school place that worked with students that wanted to get ahead in the public schools so they could test into the the top high schools and so forth and then go on to good colleges so I had actually started working at the weekend school first, and then I started training to get a substitute teacher license in the New York City Public Schools, which I obtained in November of 2019, so just over a year after I had moved to New York. And then by the end of December, I put in my two weeks at the Italian restaurant. I left on excellent terms. My boss told me, keep your apron, work Mother's Day, you'll always have a home here. And that felt really great. And it was actually, too, the, the regulars at that restaurant were like, Jillian, what are you doing here? Why don't you go into the schools? Why don't you teach? And so they also were a big inspiration, too. So I did start working in the public schools. I got hired by the first my first assignment at PS90 in Coney Island. Um, I was a long-term music teacher. And then when the music teacher came back, they said, just stay. We'll We'll find a place for you. They eventually placed me as a kindergarten teacher. And now uh, this was February of 2020. So in March, when coronavirus hit, I was a remote kindergarten teacher up until June when the school year ended, and then my position technically vanished. Now again, at this point, I had amassed enough word-of-mouth buzz about my language teaching that I thought to myself, you know, the public schools, it was a fantastic experience. I do love working with children. And I have nothing but respect for people who do work in the public schools, particularly in a place like New York City. I realized it wasn't, it wasn't for me. And coronavirus too, and this comes from a great place of privilege to to say this, it gave me the chance to rest. You know, all of a sudden I wasn't running around New York six days a week working there and then working at the weekend school and then going to Central Park South and then to the East Village. Like I wasn't, for the first time, I wasn't running around New York. And I got a taste of financial stability, which I had, you know, saved up some money because I'm very, I'm very frugal, (laughs) which is, I think, very important to be if you're an artist. Um, or creative Uh, so I'd saved up some money and I had this stable paycheck while also having you know I didn't have a commute anymore with coronavirus and you're not on with the kids for you know seven hours a day I was only on with them for like three because you you can't put a five-year-old on a screen for seven hours they will lose their mind and so would I so during the time when I wasn't on the screen I thought to myself huh what if I turned liner notes my dissertation into a book which is kind of what I had in mind when I was writing out the stories, the ethnographic vignettes. And also, too, what my dissertation writing buddy, Matthew Hall, who was a Bach scholar, had said to me, too. He's like, this is great. Why don't you publish this as, like, a real book? And I thought, you know, maybe I will. So with coronavirus, I finally had the time to think about clarifying the tone of that book. And I turned it into, like, a post-academic manuscript that was also an experiment in analytical storytelling. And public intellectualism. So letting readers come to their own conclusions about what these three music scenes and the author's experience in them might say about Japanese society on whole or music's relationship to society rather than me shoving my own analysis down their throats. It also served as a symbolism of the effort that I realized I wanted to make, particularly for us humanities PhDs toward thinking about making our work accessible in new ways for a broader audience. So to that end, I cleaned up the book and I submitted to a bunch of independent publishers, about 19 of them, and I got picked up, which was great, actually by that last press that I submitted to, the 19th one. And that really was a huge boon for me because I thought, okay, I'm recognized my writing is being accepted on a new level and maybe I can really do this. Maybe I can really live as a creative and live well. So post PhD, obviously my journey has been simultaneously one of figuring out how to make my PhD work for me and finding out what, how do I use this to make money? But it's also been one of me finding my way and figuring out what my career path is, how to integrate my loves of music, my loves of culture, my loves of language, and, and my, my love of, of learning. And here I am today teaching my own programming which includes languages and seminars on Japanese music. I've run a seminar on cha- Chinese history, 1850 to present, post-war Japanese music, jazz, deep dive, classical music appreciation, divination theory and practice. So I've run a bunch of different um, programming that feeds my my soul as a teacher. And I still work at the weekend school because I just love those kids and they're great. You don't have to discipline them either for the most part because they're just so sweet. While at the same time, really leaning into my creative activities. So playing music. I was playing a lot of shows out before coronavirus. Obviously that put a stop on the performances temporarily, but I've been Honing my craft at trumpet and piano in the meantime, and I have lots of big designs this year to get back out there. i um, also working on, you know, compositions and so forth, transcriptions. And my writing. So in 2021, after my book got picked up, Japantham got picked up, I actually wrote another book called PhD Waitress. Based on the experiences that I've described here today, being a PhD out in the world, in the humanities in particular, making it work, refracted through this wacky Italian restaurant that I found myself working at. So the book is simultaneously a memoir of a PhD transitioning into the world and an ethnography of this restaurant with character portraits, interviews, the whole nine yards, which serves as a real snapshot in time of old New York and something that I just think is fascinating and to this day remains my favorite part of this city, this old, genuine New York, not necessarily the hedonistic identity crises of Bushwick, if you know what I mean. So to sum up here, my journey has been one from the beginning of learning to embrace who I am and trusting that who I am is not only a creative but someone who can make money while doing that. No, I didn't choose a path where the money is guaranteed. I'm not a corporate lawyer, I'm not you know a doctor. I'm not that's okay. That was never in my plan. Um, and I've always known that even if I didn't know the shape it would take, but I just keep thinking back to the intuition I had in high school. No, I don't know what my career will be, but I know that if I focus on my passions, that it will work out. And I'm here to tell you, I I really do believe that that's true. So if you're a humanities PhD and you're wondering, what am I going to do? I just implore you to know your worth. Think about your transferable job skills and lean into that or any other side hobby that you might have that you might make some money on and lean into that and to build your career around what you can do. And to trust that the experiences that we have gained as PhDs, like self-directed work, discipline, foresight, being able to follow through on a project, these two are also enormous assets. So while I can't exactly give advice on how that parlays into a a straight job, I can say that trusting that the experience gave you transferable skills, even if you can't recognize what those are, that is absolutely something that I can speak to. And hopefully my story can serve as some kind of testament for that. So again, as an ethnomusicologist, I think it's quite fitting that I came into this field as someone who was a wanderer and a dreamer and a creative from the start. And on the other side, am a wanderer, a creative, and a dreamer, but I'm just more determined because of the skills that I gained as a PhD student, namely discipline. Basically, since leaving the academic world, I realize I can pursue my dreams and I'm very grateful to be surrounded by people who believe in me. You know, on the other on the other hand, in academia, there were a lot of folks, unfortunately, that were telling me that I I couldn't. And there was this culture of just, you can't, you have to prove yourself, you have to prove yourself. And let me tell you, yes, you do have to prove yourself, but to no one else than you. So that's what I've got for you. To close out, I just have to say, I am so happy, despite all these trials and tribulations that I've gone through, both in and out of academia, I am so, so glad that I got a PhD. And I am so incredibly glad that I got that I did it at Cornell. I had the chance to work with some of the most amazing professors. Yeah, there was some bullshit there, but as I've learned, there's bullshit in any profession. Um, It's just a matter of, to quote Elizabeth Gilbert, um, it's just a matter of if you're willing to eat that profession's bullshit. (laughs) So for me that was very much a personal choice. There's no objective right or wrong answer to doing a PhD or even leaving academia. And again, I was so lucky to be able to do that at Cornell and I was very Blessed, very privileged, especially with regard to how well we were taken care of there materially. The friends I've made there, the people that I, I met there remain close, close friends to this day. So I have I have no regrets about doing a PhD. Doing a PhD made me who I am today, and I like who I am, and it also crystallized this path I was always aware I was on and was going to take the leap toward more concretely someday, toward being a creative person. It's really clarified who I am as a writer, as a musician, as an artist. And I'm so thankful for that. I wouldn't be me without the PhD. But would I advise people to do a PhD in 2023? That's not my call, you know. But I know that if you're anything like me, (laughs) you know, words from a rogue ethnomusicologist, if you hear the call, you must heed. And if you got to do a PhD and figure out the next step in your life and temper yourself through that fire, then go for it because it'll work out on the other side. I hope through this podcast, Academic Defectors, and through the work that I'm writing as a post academic, to introduce new paradigms for humanities PhDs, both in terms of career tracks that we could pursue and archiving them through interviews here on the podcast, in addition to people in other um, departments and disciplines who pursued doctor- doctorates as well, but also to create more conversation within the academic world about preparing PhDs for the non-academic job market, because there's, we are valued. We are valued. So again, my name is Jillian Marshall, PhD. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of Academic Defectors, and catch you next time.